Well, I always wanted to ascribe thanks um, to those who are up here leading us in worship. And uh, where's Larry? Lord, I want to ascribe thanks to you for uh, for sharing with us this morning. And Stan, I want to ascribe thanks to you for praying for us. So yeah, now you've heard ascribe how many times this week? So so that's good. Yes. Well, uh, would you join me as we <clears throat> as we pray together? Father, thank you that we can lift our voices together as the body of Christ in praise to you for who you are, for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus, that he would come to earth to offer his life for ours. And he did so willingly. Because he was unwilling that we would die in our own sin and be separated for all of eternity from his presence. We thank you today, Lord. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our service. You are worthy of our lives lived to the glory of your name. And we ask today that you will take your word And you will use it to teach and guide us into the truth. We ask your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and our guide in all of this. Would you take this truth that we're about to look at? And would you zero it in on every one of our lives and apply it where we need it applied? Lord, you know today who needs to be encouraged. You know who needs today to be rebuked. You know who needs today to hear the wonderful message, the good news of Jesus Christ and the grace that he has to offer. You know every one of us. You know our hearts. You know where we are in this moment. You know what we're battling and struggling with. Lord, I want to take a moment to pray for those who are who have COVID right now, who are who are sick who are struggling in that, in that way. And God, we ask that you would give them healing quickly. And we pray for our nation, not only as we walk, continue to walk through this pandemic, but Lord, more importantly, as we are in spiritual darkness. We pray that you will open the eyes, first of all, of your own people to see from your perspective And that, God, we would walk in light of the truth as the light of this world in the midst of darkness. We'll thank you. Now would you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. John Ortberg, an article in Leadership Journal entitled, True Transformation shares this. He said, significant human transformation always involves training, not just trying. Spiritual transformation is a long-term endeavor. It involves both God and us. I liken it to crossing an ocean. Some people try day after day to be good, to become spiritually mature. And that's like taking a rowboat across the ocean. 
It's exhausting and usually <laughs> unsuccessful. Others have given up trying and throw themselves entirely on relying on God's grace. They're like drifters on a raft. They do nothing but hang on and hope God gets them there. Neither trying nor drifting are effective in bringing about spiritual transformation. A better image is the sailboat, which if it moves at all, is a gift of the wind. You can't control the wind, but a good sailor discerns where the wind is blowing and adjusts the sails accordingly. Working with the Holy Spirit is like which Jesus likened to the wind in John 3 means that we have a part in discerning the wind. And knowing the direction we need to go and in training our sails to catch the breezes that God provides. He says that's true transformation. This process is a joint effort between God and you and I. We are joint participants with God in the process that God is working in our lives. And as we come to Philippians chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul continuing uh, the, the instruction that he's been giving us about how we are to live as followers of Christ. How we're to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, he gives us that first imperative in the text. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And he goes on, in my opinion, the rest of the letter to kind of flesh this out for us. And there in the beginning of chapter 2, we see he calls us as the body of Christ to live in harmony with one another with God, to get in step with God as, as Jesus is the, the melody. We are the harmony. So we get in line with Him. And then we live in harmony with one another as we work together to accomplish by God's grace and with His help the work He's called us to do. And then last week we saw the example of Jesus in verses 5-11. through 11 who, though He existed, exists, and will always exist in the fullness of God, He took on human flesh. Took on the, the limitations of humanity without giving up any of His divinity, which is the, 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 most, the ultimate example of hum humility. And then He gave His life for us on the cross at Calvary to pay for your sin and mine so that by faith in Christ we can have eternal life and forgiveness. And then God exalted Him highly above every other name. And that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why not get in step with that now, right? As we talked about last week. Why not bow the knee now? Why not confess with our tongue now that Jesus Christ is Lord? The way we live, the way we speak, the way we do everything is to be a reflection of Christ as Lord to a watching world. And then we come to verses 12 through 16, our text this morning, where Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as 
You have always obeyed, not in my, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. We are joint participants with God in this process, this thing that God is doing, the work that He's up to in and through our lives. And in this text, we have three imperatives, three directives, admonitions, uh, commands, if you will, that are given to us in how we flesh out the gospel as we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of it. And again, he starts with that, so then, my beloved. In other words, in light of all that I've already said, let me tell you what to do. And he commends them for their continual obedience. He says, just as you've always obeyed. That word obey in Scripture means to hear under. Uh, to bring yourself under someone else's authority. To listen under. That is, to give attention because somebody important is saying something you need to hear and you need to do. And this is what we're called to. To hear under the Lord. To be under Him. Paul says, not just when I'm with you, not just when, uh, when you have somebody there uh, encouraging you or helping you or teaching you, no, but how much more in my absence. And there's an urgency to, to what he's saying. Much more now in my absence. Work out your salvation. That's our first imperative. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what we're called to. If we're going to participate with God in the work that He is doing, we need to work out our salvation. We do not work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. They're already saved. These, these are people who have already come to understand the gospel of Christ and have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. And so, He is not telling them what to do to get saved. He's telling them what to do now that they are saved. Someone said it this way, salvation is not a work of man for God, but the work of God for man. God did it through His Son Jesus on our behalf. And so the, the uh, admonition here is, now that you are saved, work this thing out in your life. That is, we ought to take responsibility for our own maturity. We ought to take responsibility for our own maturity. To work out something means to carry something to its ultimate conclusion. If you have a math problem in front of you, you work that math problem out until you come to its ultimate conclusion. Right? The answer. 
or to work out our salvation till its ultimate conclusion. What is that? It is spiritual maturity in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We are to be come more and more like Jesus in our lives. Not by only our own effort, but we have a part to play. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we submit to the Holy Spirit, He is working in us, producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is the likeness of Jesus in our lives. But we have a part to play. He says, do this with fear and trembling. I appeal to, uh, to Dr. Ken Wiest in his book, uh, word studies in the Greek New Testament. He says, this fear is self-distrust. It is tenderness of conscience. It is vigilance against temptation. To be vigilant against temptation. To recognize there is an enemy who is at work and he is seeking to drive you away from God. To tear you down. To discourage and distract and get you uh, involved with sinful behavior. He goes on to say it is a taking heed lest we fall. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Take heed. Those who think they stand, take heed lest you fall. It's taking heed. It is a constant apprehension of the deceitfulness of the heart. And the insidiousness and power of inward corruption. <laughs> Proverbs, I think it's 26, um, I forget the verse, 26, 26, I think maybe something, it, or 28, 26. It says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. What's the message of our world? Trust your heart. You know the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked? According to Scripture. This fear is recognizing, I can't trust my own heart. Heart will deceive me. There's a caution, he says, in circumspection that timidly shrinks from whatever would offend and dishonor God our Savior. Work out your salvation with this kind of recognition before God. Take responsibility. For your part in the maturing process, which is yielding to God and His work, it's, it's walking in obedience to the truth that we know. And then he says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We've got to trust God also for our maturity. We take responsibility and we trust God because God has a part in this. God is at work. Verse 12 is our personal responsibility. Verse 12 is divine enablement. The word to work means to energize. To give us ability. To work effectively. The word will is, means to desire. My understanding of what this is saying is this, that God is working in you and I to cause a desire within us to want the things that God wants, to want the things that bring Him pleasure. And God is also at work in us to energize us, to give us the ability to live that way. 
But you and I have a will. And we have a part to play in this. Will I submit to the work that God is doing in my life? And will I step out and walk in obedience to what God is telling me to do? God has put a desire in me. God has given me the strength and ability to do it. Now I've got to step out and trust Him and do it. Let me say this, just as a warning, if you have no desire, I'm not talking about wanting to but not walking it through. I'm talking about if you have no desire whatsoever to do anything that honors the Lord, you've got to really ask yourself, do I know Jesus in a personal way? Because God gives that desire to His children. We don't always walk in accord with it. But if it's not even there, that's a warning. We might have a lot of knowledge up here. But we may not really have a relationship with Christ. Now, the problem for many in the church is we have this desire, but we're not walking it out. So whose fault is that? It's not that God isn't doing His part. So we've got to look in the mirror and we've got to ask ourselves, what are you calling me to, Lord? Where, where, where am I, where's my responsibility? And am I living up to it? And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons why. But there's no excuses. <laughs> and we can come up with all kinds of reasons why we're not, we're not where we ought to be or we, where we want to be. But this verse tells us that God is at work. And God is not deficient in any way. So if God is at work in us, we have what we need. So we have to take responsibility for our own maturity as we trust in God to bring that about. Again, Kenneth Weiss says, It is this desire to do the good pleasure of God that is produced by the divine energy in the heart of the saint as he definitively subjects himself or herself to the Holy Spirit's ministry. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who energizes the saint, making him not only willing but actively desirous of doing God's sweet and perfect will. But he does not merely leave the saint with the desire to do his will. He provides the necessary power to do it. God has done all that we need. Now it's our job to say, Lord, I want to trust you. And I want to step out. And it's going to look different in every one of our lives. Right? It doesn't take you from, from being completely inactive in anything to do with the Lord to, to taking you to preaching to thousands of people all over the world. But He'll take us where we are and our desire and our willingness to step out and He'll, he'll move us. And He'll give us opportunities. If we're willing. So Paul says, work this thing out in your life. Take the necessary steps as you entrust yourself to God to trust Him and obey Him. So for not only work out your salvation, the second imperative, verse 14, is <clears throat> to work on your attitude. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. <clears throat> in fact, the words all things in the original language in Greek is at the very beginning of the sentence. In English, we, we put words in order based upon the meaning in the sentence. 
whether it's a subject or the verb or whatever. In, in Greek, it's oftentimes by emphasis. The word all things is the very beginning to emphasize all things. And here's our point. <clears throat> all things means all things. I know that poof, your brain just went like this, right? But that's what it means. In other words, there's nothing that doesn't fall under all things. So in other words, there's no, there's no excuse for grumbling here, excuse me. There's never a good reason for that. Well, again, we do it. Grumbling means having a bad attitude. To murmur against another person, not necessarily God, but against another person. It's used of those who confer secretly, of those who discontentedly complain. The idea here is, um, you know, when you've got a problem with somebody, you don't go to that person. You know, we often don't do that. We go to someone else and talk about that person to this person, trying to build some, 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 uh, some sympathy, trying to build a case, trying to make our point to someone else. And what we're really doing is we're grumbling and we're not dealing with the problem. Jesus tells us how to deal with this kind of stuff. You go to the person in love and you, you deal with them. They don't always like that. And what happens as a result of the grumbling is we have disputes. A dispute is a discussion or debate with underlying suspicion or doubt. It's not that there's nothing wrong with having disagreements. We will, because we don't see eye to eye on everything, and that's part of how we grow up, is we share our perspectives, and, and they're different, and we, we help each other grow up by seeing different perspectives and, and trying to understand the Word of God as we submit to it. But these disputes are, are because there is a grumbling, there is a building a case, there is a doubt and, a, and, a, and a, a lack of willingness to see the other person as we ought to see them, and it becomes divisive in a group of people. And apparently that was happening in the, in the, in the uh, church in Philippi. This is why Paul is addressing it. All things means all things. We are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. The second point about this is attitude impacts everything. Your attitude, my attitude, impacts everything. That's why in verse 5 he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, which was the attitude of humility, of putting others' needs ahead of your own, regarding one another more important than yourself rather than puffing uh, ourselves up, right? Puffing up our nothingness is what, uh, what pride is. Somebody once said, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% of how you respond. Probably true. I remember a statement in, in uh, Warren Wearsby's book on being a servant of God. He says, what life finds, what life does to us often is a result of what life finds in us. How many times have we blamed our bad attitude on the world, on our circumstances? 
oh, if this hadn't happened, if, if this person hadn't done this, if that's, that person hadn't said this, then I would have acted rightly. <clears throat> what life finds, uh, does to us often find, is what fi finds in us. And so if my attitude is right, if I'm trusting the Lord, I had the privilege uh, uh, on Friday, I got a phone call from somebody I haven't talked to for years. Some of you who've been around for a long time may remember uh, Dick and Anastasia Burr, uh, the, the prayer conferences that we had years ago. Uh, Dick has passed on to be with the Lord. His wife Anastasia, some of you may remember, she, she was diagnosed with a, um, a dementia. It was called FTD, frontal temporal dementia. And uh, she spent eight years in a nursing home, most of the day in bed, with tremors and couldn't remember anything. Eight years. During that time, her husband died. She's healed. She's living in Massachusetts. She called me the other day, and I hadn't talked to her for years. She said, <laughs> when I went to, to Massachusetts, she had family up there, she began seeing a, another neurologist who looked at her charts. The neurologist said, I, I don't know what they saw back then, but you don't have this now. And then, she, then, then they said, they looked at all the medication she was taking. They said, this medication right here um, is what caused, has caused tremors. They went to the expert neurologist in Pittsburgh. I mean, they, they never even thought to go to a second opinion because they were the best doctors there were. We don't trust humans, right? Everybody makes errors. But it was the result of man's uh, misdiagnosis of some kind, or maybe she had something, but the medication created some of the symptoms. Again, that, that's just all that to say this. She told me, she said, I spent eight years laying on my back. And I said to the Lord, what purpose was this? She said, I, I, I found the root of bitterness growing in my heart. And I didn't want that. And I kept asking the Lord, why? Why? And she said, the Holy Spirit whispered to my spirit, if one person was influenced for Christ as a result of eight years on your back, it was all worth it. She said, that was hard to hear. And she said, I have received that. I thank God for that. But it's only by the grace of God that I can say, tell you today that I'm free from that, that uh, bitterness and that anger. You see, what life does to us is what life finds in us. Any of us could say, man, she has every right. Her family, her husband's family are all telling her, so you got to sue the doctor. Sue the doctor. You could be a multimillionaire. Sue the doctor. She said, I'm not doing that. I don't want that money. Because I believe in the sovereignty of God. And I trust my God. This is, this is what we, this is how we need to live our lives. President Eisenhower often spoke of his mother's wisdom. 
he would he would say he wished he, she was around when he was the president so he could he could lean on her for for advice and wisdom and he tells this one story he said when we were when we were children my brothers and I were were playing a card game with her mother her mother was the dealer she dealt me a very bad hand I began to complain mother said boys put your cards down I want to tell you something particularly you Dwight you're in a game in your home with your mother and brothers who love you. But out in the world, you're going to be dealt bad hands without love. Here's some advice for you boys. Take those bad hands without complaining and play them out. Ask God to help you. And then you will win the important game called life. The president added, I've tried to follow that wise advice always. Life will deal you bad hands. We live in a fallen world. How are you going to respond to that? What's the heart attitude? Do you trust the Lord? Do I trust the Lord? can always find a reason, but never an excuse. Work on your attitude. Thirdly, work at your witness. The third imperative in the text is that word appear in verse 15. Appear as lights. We are to be, we are to be light. We're supposed to be different. In this world. Right? He says. Do all things without troubling or disputing. That you may prove yourselves. Blameless and innocent. Children of God without reproach. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you never ever. Uh, mess up. We're, we're, we're not getting there until we're in glory. But this is. This speaks about external. Obvious things that people can point to. In our life to say. That person's a Christian. I don't want anything to do with that. If, if, he's, if he's a Christian and he, he lives this way and he does these things constantly or, or she, she acts like that, I don't want anything to do with that. The above reproach means that there's no obvious things in our life that people point to and say, none of us are perfect. But we're working out our salvation. And God is working in us to bring about this maturity. And that becomes evident as the fruit of the Spirit becomes the character of our life rather than all these other things that are contrary to God. So we work at our witness. We're called to be light in the darkness it's a crooked and perverse generation in which we live. It's the, that was the way it was in Paul's day, and it's certainly daily becoming more crooked and more perverse. We know that. Every time you turn on any form of media, you see it right in your face. What's the answer to that? I remember hearing Cal Thomas one time say, I, I did a little experiment one time. He said, I... I went into a closet in my house. I closed the door, and it was pitch dark in there. And I, he said, I started cursing the darkness. 
He's saying, guess what happened? Nothing. Then I turned the light on. And all darkness went away. He said, our problem in the church is that we tend to just sit and curse the darkness all the time. We complain about how bad it is out there. And how awful these people are. And I can't believe they think that way. I can't believe they do this. I can't believe that they buy into that agenda. And, and that's all true. But what good is it for us to complain about it? You need to turn on the light. We're called to be light in the darkness. What does light do? It dispels darkness and reveals reality. Remember as a little kid, I was afraid of the dark. In our basement, we had a nice finished basement in the house, but, but there was one room kind of tucked off that wasn't finished where the laundry was and we had a shower back there and Dad's workbench and stuff. And sometimes I had to go back there. And you know, my dad was a builder. He built the house, but in his genius, he didn't put a light switch on the one side. He put it inside the room where it was dark. And so you had to kind of get down this little hallway. It was dark till you got into the room and then flip the light on. And I remember, of course, in a basement, you got lights, the windows that are just up high, and there's hardly any light. And my mom, she always liked to put curtains on. So it was always dark. And I remember, you know, sometimes I would just, I would creep back there, you know, just really hoping, just reach around, flip the light on. You know, but if you, you look in there and you see shadows and you see things and they look like monsters. So you turn the light on and you see, oh, that's just a coat hanging on a, on a nail there on the wall. But in the dark, it looks like a monster. But the light reveals reality. That's what we're supposed to be. To reveal reality as we live our lives before others. Do you know that people don't get saved by watching you live an exemplary life? They get saved because they recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And when you and I live our lives <clears throat> the way God has called us to live, that means that we're going to apologize when we screw up. We're going to let them know that we're not perfect, but we're striving under the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do mess up, we apologize. And they look and say, there's something real about this Christian stuff. Because if, if we think that just living a perfect life before others and not ever letting anybody see who we really are is going to change them, they look and say, I can't be like that. That's not real. That's not, I, I, if that's who they really are, I had no shot at that. But when they see that we're real, that we mess up, but we know what to do with our mess up. We know where to find forgiveness. And we know where to find hope and help in those times. They say, man, I, maybe, that, maybe there's something there for me. So we're called to be that light. To dispel the darkness and make clear what reality the way we live, by the way we speak, by the way we interact with people. And we're called to hold forth the Word. It says holding fast the Word of life. That word hold fast means to hold forth as, as to make an offer. 
to take something and say, here, I, I want you to have this. That's what we're to do with the Word of God. Not jamming it down people's throats, but making it available. I love this story that uh, somebody somebody shared in a, in a uh, in a periodical. It says, "Oh, it was a battle, a wrestling match, a test of wills. Every day at exactly the same time, Margaret would go to the bathroom cabinet, open it, and take out a huge bottle of castor oil. Then she would head to the kitchen to get a teaspoon." A tablespoon. At the sound of the drawer opening and the silverware rattling patches, her Yorkshire Terrier would run and hide. Sometimes under the bed, other times in the bathtub and behind Margaret's recliner, patches knew what was coming. Someone had convinced Margaret that her beloved dog would have strong teeth, a beautiful coat, and a long life if she gave him a spoonful of castor oil every day. So as an act of love, Every 24 hours, she cornered Patches, pinned him down, pried open his mouth, and as he whimpered, squirmed, and fought uh, with all the strength, she poured a tablespoon of castor oil down his little doggy throat. Neither Patches nor Margaret enjoyed this daily wrestling match. Then one day, in the middle of the bottle royale, with one sideways kick, Patches sent the dreaded bottle of castor oil flying across the kitchen floor. It was a momentary victory for the canine. As Margaret let him go she could, so she could run to the pantry and grab a towel to clean up the mess. When Margaret got back, she was utterly shocked. There was Patches licking up the spilled castor oil with a look of satisfaction that only a dog can have. Margaret began to laugh uncontrollably. In one moment, it all made sense. Patches liked castor oil. He just hated being pinned down and forced to eat it. Welcome to the world of evangelism. We do not have to pin people down and force it down their throat. We just have to live an authentic life where Jesus Christ is in control and He's really Lord. And He is at work in us cultivating through His Spirit the character uh, of Himself through this fruit of the Spirit. And people will see there's something here. There's something real. And when we open up doors of communication, we find out, are they interested? Do they want to know more? Valerie and I had the opportunity this past week to talk to a young couple. And a question came up uh, through the course of the conversation. Do you know why Jesus came to earth? And one of them, the young lady, she looked at me and said, I have no idea. So we got to share the gospel with her. She's had a lot of questions. Okay. We're going to continue to get together. Also found out in the course of the conversation, there's another young couple who are believers who have been investing in their 
young man has been inviting the, the, the gentleman to Bible studies and goes sometimes. He says, I really get a lot out of it. I really un understand it more. The young lady said, you know, I see something in that marriage that's different. I want what they have. That is what we're to be. When God gives us the opportunity, it's not, it's not awkward. It's not uh, forcing something that isn't there. It's just being willing to talk, to be real, to share the truth. And in God's time, in God's way, He opens their eyes and their heart to the truth and they receive it. We participate with God in this journey. He's at work. He's at work in us. He's at work in other people. We need to get on board, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, take responsibility for our part, trust God to do His part. We need to work on attitudes so when life happens, and it always will, it finds in us a work of God that can respond appropriately to these things. We need to work at our witness. We need to be intentional. We need to ask God, Lord, give me opportunities. Give me eyes to see them. Give me the courage to step into them. Help me to know how to, how to steer a conversation. And I'll be the first to tell you I'm not really good at this. But I want to be. I want to get better. I'm praying more about that. a little embarrassing to have been a pastor for 28 years and still not be very good at this. But I can confess to you that I haven't spent a lot of time in those 28 years cultivating it either. I spend my time with, with God's people. I love that. I love you. I love being with you. But I'm also called to be a witness for Christ. I want to be better at it. Would you join me in asking God to help us be better at this? Oh, God, we need your help. We can be assured because your word tells us that you are at work in us. Both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And for that, we give you thanks. We ask that you would encourage our hearts to do our part. To work at this thing. But there's nothing more important in all this world that we can do with our lives than to represent Jesus Christ to a, a dark and perverted world where people are dying every day apart from Jesus. Give us a heart for the lost. You give us a heart like yours. And do this work as we submit ourselves to you. Make us more like Jesus. For this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.
please stand with me as